Oh, our great God, what a, what a wonderful privilege it is to gather before you as your people and how good you are to us, how faithful you are, how gracious, how generous. Uh, what a wonderful God, God you are to us in that you have opened your heart and mind to us. You've spoken to us. You haven't left us to guess and grope, but you've told us exactly who you are, who we are, what we need, and how we can approach you. Father, this time as we turn to your word, it, it is just a wonderful thing, not enjoyed by any other people on earth, that we can turn to your word with the absolute assurance that our God will speak to us. Uh, that's not in doubt. The only doubt is, will we listen? Will we hear? And we're not sufficient of ourselves, Father. We pray for the blessed ministry of your Holy Spirit to teach us today. We pray that he will open our hearts, that you will fill our hearts with the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Christ, that we might see what you've given to us and what you teach us. Father, may each of us hear it in a personal way to see the ways this applies to us as individuals. May none of us go away without having known that we've been spoken to by the living God through his eternal, inerrant, unchanging word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Hebrews 11, please. That's going to be our springboard. We'll see if I remember how to do this. I think that's a good start, turning in the Bible. So as I say, we're going to be looking at some of the implications and applications of faith. Uh, faith, you know, as a Christian is a vital subject. I mean, what is this? It's the Christian faith. Our very religion is a faith. So that gives the impression that we all should know what that means. But if you know the Bible at all, at all think of all the, uh, all the weight that the Bible puts on pray, uh, faith. Think of all that the Bible says about faith. The Philippian jailer asks, what must I do to be saved? And what's he told? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Rest your faith on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. So salvation is possible to him, but he must rest his faith on Jesus. Think about the wonderful words in Romans 5, 1 and 2, where Paul having shown that we're all sinners, we're all guilty, doesn't matter what ethnicity, doesn't matter what walk in life, we're all guilty before the, the bar of God, the, the judgment seat of God. And yet we find that the righteousness of God, God's way of being right in his sight, has been manifested, Romans 3, apart from law, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith, by Jesus' work on the cross. And so Romans 5, verses 1 and 2 say, therefore having been justified, having been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've received this introduction by grace, by faith, pardon me, by faith into this grace in which we stand. So we're declared righteous by means of faith. We stand in grace through faith. Faith is the way into those uh, standings, those conditions before God. So faith is very important. Ephesians 2, of course, says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this, the whole package being saved by grace through faith, all of it is a gift of God not of works lest anyone should boast. And uh, think also of uh, Hebrews chapter 11. Ahead of the verse we'll be looking at all these people, all the things they did by faith, all the sacrifices that they gladly endured by faith, all the riches they turned their backs on, all of the uh, suffering that they opened themselves to and in fact embraced. What motivation? What reason? What's the phrase that occurs again and again? By faith, by faith, by faith. So faith is a very, very important thing. It's crucial, it's critical, it's, it's, it's not uh, auxiliary. So we must understand what faith is. We've got to understand what faith does for us. We've got to understand how faith comes to us because this makes all the difference, not just theoretically, not just as a point of doctrine to make sure that we get right, but it makes all the difference to our lives, to who we are and how we live in this world. So, 
let's explore this by asking and answering some questions. Three today. Uh, number one, is Hebrews 11.1 1 a definition? Is Hebrews 11.1 1 a definition? Is it a definition? Well, how would most people define faith? Now, that's kind of a basic question, isn't it, you would think. But I dare say that a great many people, even churchgoers, were you to ask, well, define faith for me, uh, they'd kind of grope around for a definition, even though it's so central. Um, how would most people answer it? I would say most people, and, and now not meaning just churchgoers, most people would say that faith is a, is a feeling, right? It's a feeling that you work up from inside of you. You think things through, you weigh this and that, you apply your judgment to what you think the evidence is, and then you accept whatever it is by faith. I think we can leave aside the definition of the little boy uh, in Sunday school, the smart mouth, who asked what faith was. He said, well, faith is believing what you know ain't so. Well, that's not what faith is. But how do we come to faith? Uh, I would say most people think we come to it from within ourselves. We come to it from, from, with our feelings and with our judgment and by our own processing of data and information. Faith comes like this. It comes from within us, and it's something that we choose to give. Now, many uh, biblical Christians, perhaps, would say, well, no, I, I know how to define faith, and they turn to Hebrews 11.1, 1, because to all appearances, that, that looks like a definition of faith, doesn't it? So here we go. What, is, what does the writer say in the ESV? In the ESV, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I wonder if I asked, except that I've, now I've sort of triggered you to suspect it's not a definition. But if I had asked before I did that, how many think that this is a definition of faith? I wonder how many hands would go up. Well, this isn't a definition of faith. Let me tell you what it is. It's not a definition. It's a description of what faith does for us. It's a description of how faith operates in us. It's a description of what faith provides to us. Now, if you're one of these people who only fills in blanks, you're going to kind of be in trouble. You see, there's fewer blanks to fill in, so the whole spaces are your blanks. Fill those in. <laughs> faith is described in Hebrews 11.1, 1, not defined. It's described in terms of what it does for us, how it works, how it operates in us, what it provides to us. Let me make sure that we understand that. Let me flesh this out. Let me give two common sense statements about water. <clears throat> Which one of these is a definition of water? Water is two atoms of hydrogen bound to one atom of oxygen. That's A. B, water is the life of any community. Which one of those is a definition of water, A or B? A is a definition of water. Which one of those is true? Both are true. B is not a definition, it's a description. Of course, I kind of like the one, you've seen it probably, it's a meme. It shows, I think it's like a, a gracious housewife, looks like she's maybe from the 1800s and she's holding a cup and smiling. And it says, water is life. Because without water, there is no coffee. And if there's no coffee, I'll kill you all. So I kind of like that. That's a good description of water, too. I can sign off on that. Let me give you some biblical uh, examples of statements that are like this one, I think. One is Matthew 6.22. As soon as I start, this will be familiar to you. Matthew 6.22. Jesus says, The eye is the lamp of the body. Therefore, if your eye be uh, single, all the body is illuminated. The eye is the lamp of the body. Now, is that a definition of what the eye is? Well, no. The eye doesn't shine out light, and of course it's not a literal lamp. But it serves as a lamp for the body. It brings light into the body, you see. So this is not a definition of what the eye is. It's a description of what the eye does, do you see? Another example, Romans 1.16. You'll know this one too. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel... For it is, okay, that sounds like a definition. What is the gospel? Well, I'd like to be able to answer that question. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God resulting in salvation for everyone who believes, 
to the Jew first and to the Greek. So is that a definition of the gospel? No. Somebody asks you, hey, I don't even understand what the gospel is. What is it? And you say, well, it's the power of God. Oh, okay, thanks. I got it now. Well, no, that's not a definition of the gospel. You want a definition of the gospel, go to 1 Corinthians 15. Now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel. This is a description of the gospel. What does it do? What does it perform? What does it bring to us? What does it bring to us? The power of God resulting in salvation. That's what the gospel does. And another one that grammatically is almost exactly like like Hebrews 11, different words, of course, but grammatically very similar, 1 Timothy 6.6. Let's just turn there just for a second. 1 Timothy 6.6, because I think it's it's a good help. Shining light on Hebrews 11.1. 1 Timothy 6.6, Paul's been talking about um, godliness and about riches and wealth. And he says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness is great gain. So is that a definition of godliness? (laughs) Well, I want to be godly. What's being godly? It's great gain. Oh, okay. (laughs) Well, I'm worth $100,000. I must be godly. Uh, No, that's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying is that godliness brings great gain to us, right? If accompanied with contentment. That a reverent, God-fearing heart is better profit than a lot of money. So don't you see, all of these that I've just quoted to you are very similar in function to Hebrews 11.1. He's not defining faith, he's describing it. So what does faith do to us? How does it serve us? Well, the way faith serves us is it takes things, here's a paraphrase, it takes the things we're we hope for, and gives them substance for us. And it takes the things we don't see, and it gives us a conviction of their truth. Do you see? That's what faith does. I have a lot more to say about that, God willing. Uh, and, and it'll take more than this sermon to say all that I want to say about it. But um, this is the function of this verse. Not to define faith, but to describe it. The Christian life you know from Ephesians, you know from any letter, is all about hope. The gospel brings message of hope. How do we connect to that hope? How do we connect to it in a way that has any impact on our daily lives? On the the pressures, the fears, the anxieties of today? what, What makes that hope mean anything to me? Well, it's faith. Faith makes that hope not a wispy, far off thing, but something I can hold in my hand until I possess the thing itself. Are you with me so far? Oh, somebody needs to tell me he's with me. I'm, I'll just, okay, I, Caesar's with me, so he'll explain it to you? No, I know y'all are. So, and the thing's not seen. Well, what does that cover? Oh, most of our faith. Christ's death, resurrection, ascension to the right hand of the Father, his current session at the right hand of the Father. God! But how does that become something that we can count on? Something... <clears throat> Of, his tru- of whose truth uh, we're convinced. Well, faith does that for us. Faith serves that function for us. So, Hebrews 11 verse 1 describes what faith does for us, how it operates in us, what it provides for us. Is it a definition? No. It's a description. Second question. What does Hebrews 11.1 1 teach us about faith? What does Hebrews 11.1 1 teach us about faith? Well, let's take these two phrases one by one. First of all, ESV says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The New American Standard says the same. The Christian Standard Bible, I think, is better. Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for. And actually, mark this down in your journal, I'm going to say probably the King James Version may, may be the best of them. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. But why? Well, I'm going to start with the phrase things hoped for. What is the nature of things hoped for? Best single statement on that is in Romans chapter 8. Turn to Romans chapter 8 and look at verse 24 with me. It's short, it's sweet, but it's really worth taking a a serious look at. Romans 8, 24. 
All right, I have to back up to 23. And not only the creation, but we, are, we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we, walk, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, the future redemption of our bodies, in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? Almost so common sense, you don't think you need a Bible verse for it, but there it is. <laughs> the nature of hope is, uh, as I've said in the past, it's long-term faith. The object of, of hope is something not yet in possession. Yesterday, I hoped I'd be preaching to you today. I've hoped I'd be preaching with you a number of Saturdays and Fridays, and it didn't happen. Do I hope I'll be preaching to you today? No, I hope I'll finish the sermon, <laughs> but I don't hope I'll be preaching to you because here I am preaching to you. Thank God I'm preaching to you. It's not an object of hope anymore. It's in my possession. The point of hope is hope is something that we don't have in hand. What are some of the uh, biblical objects of hope? Well, specifically, the writer gives us one in Hebrews 11. Turn back there with me, please. In verse 6. Now he's talked about Enoch, and he said that Enoch by faith was taken up. And if you read Genesis, you, you say, well, how did he get that? Genesis never states that he had faith. But what does Genesis say? Genesis says that Enoch walked with God. Well, he walked with God. What does that mean? Well, it means he pleased God. He walked in company with God. He walked in fellowship with God. He pleased God. Oh, well, then the writer says, here's how I knew that he had faith. Because, verse 6, without faith it's impossible to please him. So, in other words, uh, the writer could never have said that Enoch walked with God if he didn't have faith in God. Without faith it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Oh, but we don't have all of that reward in hand just now, do we? Would it be a sad thing if we sought God all our lives and experienced worldly loss and even the loss of our lives and then were to die and find out that there's nothing beyond this life? There's no eternal reward. And, and I tell you, the, the reward of being in the presence of God is sufficient reward. Amen? But there are more rewards besides that God promises astonishingly. So, we must believe that he is, that he exists, and that he's a rewarder of the one who diligently seeks him. Well, that's our hope. It's not yet in possession. It's our hope. And that's the object of our faith. God makes this promise, and we believe his promise. And that promise, though future in its realization, is made real to us now by faith. Real enough that it motivates lives like we read of in Hebrews 11, that it motivates the willingness to lose our property, like we read about in Hebrews 10, and suffer the confiscation of our goods, as, as we read about in Hebrews and the rest of the New Testament as well. We don't have the hope in hand, but faith puts the reality of it, the substance of it, in our hand, enough that we are motivated to live lives of hope by faith, you see. So there's his example, and of course we can, we can expand this, but uh, the book of Hebrews is all about hope. <clears throat> even where the word isn't used. The word is used a number of times. It, it, it is rewarding to use a concordance and find it. It's very meaningful. But really the whole letter is about hope. It, he strikes the note in the first chapter that when Jesus accomplished atonement for sins, cleansing of our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. But we hope that's true. And he says it is true, true enough that we should turn our backs on the entire Mosaic system and not turn to animal sacrifices, which was being their temptation to turn back. But no, they should cling to the confession of their hope, he says. And even if threatened with, threatened with loss of friends and family and job and goods and freedom and life, oh, they should still cling to that hope. And faith is what makes that real. The letter is all about hope. The letter talks about our hope of the sufficiency of Christ's uh, atonement. Uh, the letter talks about our hope in Christ's present 
session at the right hand of the Father and the fact that he is sitting at the Father's right hand until one day he will come and his enemies will be the footstool for his feet. And we will, as the later chapters of Hebrews say, we will receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And as this chapter says, we're looking for a city whose builder and architect is God. Uh, This is not that city. Houston is not that city. This world is not that city. We're passing through to that city. Well, I hope we are. What makes that hope real to me, real enough to live by it? Faith does. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, you see. And that's what the writer's talking about. In fact, turn to the passage that leads up to this. Just go back to Hebrews chapter 10 and start reading. Um, You know, he says in verse 32, Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings and you were publicly exposed and you accepted joyfully the plunder of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and abiding one. Where? In hand? No. Where? In heaven, promised by God to be possessed in the future. What do you call that? What do you call that kind of expectation of something to be given in the future? What's the word for that? Hope. What brings that hope to me so that it can do me good now and motivate my life now? Faith does that. So read on. Verse uh, 36. For you have need of endurance, he says, so that when you've done the will of God, that's this whole life, you may receive what is promised. So that reception is future. The doing of the will of God is now. What saves that doing from being a grim, morose, hopeless, despairing effort? Hope does. What makes hope worth having? Faith does. But there's, there's more to say about that in a moment. Verse 37, for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by, what's the word? Faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. For we are not, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. Interestingly, the, well, I'll tell you in a sec. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for. An interesting little play on words. The word for shrink back is actually a noun in verse 39. Sounds like this, hypostoles. The word for assurance or substance is the word hypostasis. You say, don't they sound alike? Hypostoles, hypostasis. We're not of hypostoles. We don't shrink back because faith gives us hypostasis. It gives us substance. It gives substance to our hope. And that's why we don't shrink back, you see. So that is about the things hoped for. Uh, his kingdom, his perfect sacrifice. Romans eight twenty eight. All things work together for good for those who love God. Does Paul say, for we see moment by moment things working together for good. No, he doesn't. But he says they do. He says they do and that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Absolutely nothing. How do we know? By faith, we hope. Faith makes that hope real. Our bodily resurrection, our eternity with God, these are things we hope for. We don't have them in hand, but faith puts the substance of it in our hand. So where then does faith come in? Faith serves to to realize uh, to make up a word, <laughs> to realify, but that's what realize means, to make real. You know, we, we usually use realize to mean something, oh, that just dawns on us, that we suddenly realize is true. But the older uh, meaning of it and more central meaning of realize is to make something real, to give it reality. And that's what faith does. It brings the reality of our hopes to us. It puts the substance of our hopes in our hands. I, I, I would say that faith is our God-ordained instrument for laying hold of these hopes. I mean, how do I enjoy Popeye's chicken? I enjoy it by taste, by, by, by my mouth. That's the instrument of taking that in. How, do I, how am I tempted and tortured if I'm dieting with the smell of Popeye's chicken if the wind is just right stepping out into the lot? By my smell. My nose is the instrument 
for uh, sensing smell. If I wondered where that alluring fragrance is coming from, how would, I, how would I find out where it came from? By sight. That's the instrument for seeing things. So what is the instrumentality of me laying hold of this hope? Of having it be real to me? I, I taste something. I see something. I smell something. But how, do I, how does hope become a reality to me? By faith. That's just what the writer's saying. Faith is what gives substance or brings the substance to me of our hopes. It connects me to God's hope-giving future promises. Faith does this. Let's look at the second phrase. Uh, it is, well, the NAS says, oops, NAS says that it is the conviction of things not seen. That's not bad. The idea is not, though, that it's a subjective conviction, though it's, it's, it is a result of that. It means it actually brings the proof to me. It actually brings the demonstration of it, of its truthfulness to me, the certain sureness of it to me, that, it is, that, that these things not seen are, in fact, realities, though I don't see them. Just because I don't see them doesn't mean that they're not real. In fact, if you believe the Bible, the things that aren't seen are, are, are more real than the things we see because the things that we see can all be shaken. They all can be shaken apart. But the things that are not seen, God, His kingdom, they can't be shaken apart. And when the things that we see are shaken apart, what will remain? The things we don't currently see. So, but how do I know that in any way that does me any good? How do I have any, any uh, reason for believing that that's true? Well, faith brings that to me, you see. This is what the, the writer is saying. Uh, it's the proof, it's the evidence, as some translations say. It's, the, it's what brings, it's, it's the, the convicting truth and demonstration of the truth of these things. So, I would say that the things hoped for are a subcategory of things not seen. It's uh, Things not seen is a broader category than things hoped for. Things not seen takes in, well, things not seen. <laughs> Whether they're, it's because they're past events or future, future events, or because they are th- realities that, to which my eyes are not uh, privy. My, my eyes don't serve to bring those things to me. You know, when you're recovering from a surgery, you have lots of time and you watch things just so you don't think about how much you hurt. And so we watched uh, a number of nature documentaries and, what, and, and whatnot. And we watched something, I think it was called Growing Up Animal. And it was a really pretty interesting series. It took a number of animals from uh, conception to early childhood early cubhood, <laughs> early sealhood, whatever, depending on what the thing was. And it's, it's remarkable, a number of these animals, that, they, that we see a certain range of light, and they see so much of a broader range of light. This is something that God has given them. Well, but we don't see these things they see. Does that mean that they don't exist? No, it means we don't have, in our eyes, the equipment to see them. But these animals do. What they think about them, who knows? But they can see them. At any rate, we don't see them. Well, they're uh, some of the most foolish people in our race, though they do know better in their hearts, say, if, if they can't see something, it's not real. Well, <laughs> that's, not, that's not very good thinking. But what this tells us is that the, assurance, or the, the conviction of the truth of these things not seen is something faith lays hold of. And as with the first clause, he gives us an example. His example is in verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen, there's the same verb as in verse 1, what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So you see there's a kind of a, kind of a chiasm there. The first clause is exampled in verse 6. The second clause is exampled in the nearer verse 3. Kind of a chiasm. I'm back. Chiasm. At any rate, this is an example. Did, did you see creation happen? I didn't see creation happen. But I'm absolutely convinced that it did. I, I know of a certainty that it did. How do I know that? Well, because God told me and because I believe him. Faith makes that true to me. 
Faith connects me to the truth of that. Faith is how I know that that statement is true. And of course, being a broad category, it takes in uh, a very uh, 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 wide array of things. We'll be going to chapter uh, 1 in just a moment, but chapter 1 just starts off there with a whole bunch of assertions about things we don't see with our eye, that Jesus is the uh, the radiance of God's glory, that, that he is the express mark of God's substance, using the same word as in verse 1, and that he accomplished... Uh, cleansing of sins and sat at the right hand of God. Do we see any of those things? No, but I have no doubt about them. Why do I have no doubt? Well, because faith gives me the certainty of that. It, it is the proof. Faith is the proof. Puts the proof in my hands. Connects me to the truth of those things. So, this is what Hebrews 11.1 1 teaches us about faith. About what it does. About what it provides for us. About what it gives to us. Now, I want to talk with you very uh, pointedly and very um, as fully as I can in one sermon. Uh, number three, what is the nature and focus of this faith? What is the nature and focus of this faith? See, because I, I really want us all to be on the exact same page here, because the word. Faith is one of the most abused words in our languages. In our language, uh, we have a very common expression. We hear, you've just got to have faith. I think of a movie I liked very much where there's a character who's supposedly a clergyman of some sort. What sort is not made clear. What he believes about much of anything is never really made clear, but he's a clergyman. Typical sci-fi movie clergyman. And there's a scene as he lies dying and he's saying to the main character who, is, who has, is, is very opposed to faith, hates faith, wants nothing to do with God particularly. This character says to him, just believe, he says. It doesn't matter what you believe, just believe it. And a great many people seeing that think, oh yeah, that's heavy. And I seeing that thought, oh yeah, that's stupid. That is stupid. That is the worst. Well, it's second worst advice to follow your heart. That's the worst advice. But this is not far off, is it? Because whatever your heart wants to believe, will believe that. And, and you've got to have faith. Have faith. Faith will get you through. As if faith is itself a virtue. As if, as if faith itself is a delivering power, a, a saving power. But it, it's none of those things as I hope you've seen already, it's an instrument. So what is the value or strength of the instrument? It's in what it lays hold of, isn't it? Is it a good thing that my hand can grab things? Yeah. Is it good for me to grab things? Well, you're going to say it depends on what you grab, right? Well, right, of course. It's good I can grab, but I better have something guiding me in what I grab or bad things will happen for a surety. And so similarly, similarly with faith. Faith is our instrument for grabbing, but what do we grab? Uh, what would the world say about faith? Well, the wrong thing, okay, but let's be more specific. What would the world say about faith? I really would like you to think this through with me. <clears throat> the, faith, the world's assumption about faith is that faith is all about us and our word. Let me repeat that slow enough to write. The world assumes that faith is all about us and our word. In other words, it's all about what my perception sees, what my judgment thinks, how it processes, what it approves, what it rejects. It's all about what makes sense to me, what suits me, what serves me, what feels right to me. And in the final analysis, my word about that. That I say, well, I believe in that. I believe this, I believe that. And when you start thinking about this and noticing that, it's, it's, it's the most astonishing things. It's the most astonishing thing to notice the array of things people confidently say they believe for absolutely no reason at all other than that they want to think it. Some celebrity they like dies. Well, I know he's in a better place. 
Some guitarist dies. I know he's up there rocking with Jimi Hendrickson and Hendrix. Sorry, Hendrickson's a Bible commentator. You figure I'd go there. Uh, that uh, he, well, yeah, he's up there rocking with the commentator William Hendrickson and the guitarist Jimi Hendrix and Terry Kath, and they're having a great big jam in heaven. Really, what led you to believe that? Well, I like to believe that. This life is not all it is. I know that after this I'm going to a better place. Really, on what basis do you believe that? What grounds that faith? Well, it makes sense to me. It gives me hope. Ah, so you see, to the world, faith, and, and if you question this, it's like you're quacking like a duck. I mean, it, it, why would you ever question that? This is the way we all do. It's just the way people think. This is how we come to faith, right? We all do the same thing. But except Christians don't. But the world does. It's all about my judgment, my standards, my feelings. It's all about autonomy, self-rule. What is autonomy? I'm a law to myself. That's what it is. And, and this is the kingdom of man. All about man. All about man's word. Starts with man, ends with man. Second, letter B, God's truth. The world's assumption is that it's all about us and our word. God's truth is it's all about God and his word. It is all about God and his word. With Hebrews 11.1, 1, fresh in your mind, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now turn back to Hebrews 1.1 and remind yourself how the book begins. Try not to argue with the translation. I'll just read it to you. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Well, where does He start? He starts with God's Word. He starts with God speaking. He says God has always spoken, but look, by prophets. So this is special revelation. Where do we get these things God has said by prophets? Where do we go to find these things God has said? Where do we go? Tell me. Well, in the Bible, they're in the Bible. But, but this was a process. He's just summed up the whole Old Testament in one of the most masterful uh, verses ever written in Greek, that it is many, uh, many portions and many manners... God progressively spoke in old times to the fathers by the prophets, but all this is building up to verse 2 in these last days. So this is the last thing God has to say for this world. In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. So this is His final word. His final word is what He says through Jesus. Oh, but notice and don't forget, he starts with the Word of God. Now, it's about Jesus, you say. Well, yes, it is, and, and the rest of the book is about Jesus. But Jesus has known how by the Word of God. Well, how does he go on to talk about Jesus? Have you read Hebrews? How does he talk about Jesus? Bible verse after Bible verse after Bible verse. <laughs> He just brings up Old Testament, Old Testament, Old Testament. Because this is God's Word. And because this, this does what then? What is God's Word? Well, it's the object of our faith. I tell you, faith is God's instrument. And what does that instrument lay hold of? God's Word. And in laying hold of God's Word, that's how faith gives substance to what we hope for. That's how faith brings the certainty, the proof, I should say, of things not seen. When we grasp hold specifically of God's Word, not of the teachings of the Bible, not of Christian ideas. One of the most disappointing sermons I ever heard from a Bible believer was about what happens to us after death. And I, he wasn't a great expositor. And I thought, surely this is going to bring him to Scripture. Because what do we know about what happens to us after death by experience? <laughs> Nothing. Not one thing. Where are you going to have to go if you want to talk about that? To the Bible. Did he? So what did I hear for 40, 30 minutes? We as Christians know. We as Christians believe. We as Christians hope. No, 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 brother. Don't tell me that. Bring me to the source of it. Because my faith 
needs to grasp God's word if it's to bring me hope and the certainty of God's truth. Do you see? You need to take my, my faltering hand, my weak faltering hand, reaching out for something certain to hold on to. And brother, pastor, you need to take that hand and put it on God's word. Not thoughts about God's word, not inferences from God's word, but God's word. This is where the writer starts out. And so then he, he, he said God has spoken to us through Jesus, and then he immediately shows us how Jesus is fit to be the final speaker of God's word. He says he's the exact imprint of his nature, really the exact imprint of his substance. The same Greek word is in Hebrews 11.1. 1. I said I wouldn't argue with the translation. I can't do it, I guess. Uh, well, I only said I'd do that for the first two verses, so I, maybe I'm in the clear. Uh, the exact imprint of his essence, of his substance. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So you see that word upholds all things and is carrying them towards their goal. And that word is the word that we listen to and that we believe. <clears throat> so think about what he does to us, to you and me, when he starts out this way. What, what place does he put us in? What existential crisis does he put you and me in? You, half listening, fully listening, all of us hear, hearing God's word. Where does he put us when he says, God has spoken over the ages through, to the prophet, to the fathers through the prophets. God has now spoken finally through his son. And where does that put me? How do I respond to that? Right? It puts me in the place where the issue to me is, what am I going to do with that word? God's spoken. And I say as a, as a brief aside, I was a charismatic as a young Christian, and, and I have many, many deep concerns now about charismaticism. I've long since left it. And, and I have a number of things I could say where I believe that, that with the best intentions in some of their cases, it's proved very harmful to Christians. And if I were to have to single out one thing, it'd be a hard choice between the discontentment in Christ and God's word that they give all Christians. That would, that would be a top pick. But the other one would be how charismaticism trivializes God's word. Trivializes the act of God speaking. Now, to him, God speaking is a matter of absolute drop-everything historical moment. God spoke over the ages through the, prof, to, through the prophets, but now he's spoken through his son. And he's going to say in chapter 2, you better listen to what he said and not drift away. This is a thunderous thing. This is a drop everything thing. For God, to, God doesn't just share. You know, you will never read a statement from God that ends with just saying. What, what do you see? Thus saith the Lord. Because this is the word of the King and Creator and Lord of all. But to charismatics, God's always dropping by and chatting about trivia. He, he's still dribbling and drabbling, you know, kind of inane nonsense. There's, there's a Christian rock artist from the uh, 70s I, I liked a lot. He's charismatic. He likes to post these things. Well, I asked God something, and here's what God said, and he just makes it up. It's not a Bible verse. What does that do to the actual Word of God? But when you come to God's Word, you think, yeah, well, I guess, but God drops by and says stuff all the time, and it's no big deal. In fact, some of it's kind of silly, you know, just to be honest. Except none of that's God's word. That's the baleful effect of, of, of the impact of God's real word. God's real word is a lion roars. You don't walk through a jungle and hear a lion roar and just go, oh, well, then that happened and keep walking, right? Or to be more real to us, you're not weeding in your garden and hear a and say, yeah, the sounds of nature and just keep reaching into the bush for weeds? Do you do that? I bet you don't. <laughs> no, that makes you stop everything. Where's that sound coming from? How close is that to me? How do I get away from it? In this case, though, this is of infinitely more moment than that. God's spoken. What do we do? Well, basically what we do, we've only got two choices. There really are only two. We believe it or we disbelieve it. We believe it or we disbelieve it. And that's the way the writer goes. Uh, go to, um, well, I want to look at chapter 2. Let's look there briefly. 
Therefore, because God has spoken to us in his son and his, his son is vastly superior to the angels, therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, the word of God, lest we, lest we drift away from it because it's not going to move. God speaking to us is not the opening of a negotiation. Repent and believe in me is not God's opening offer. Well, it is, but it's also his final offer. Although many seem to think that it's just an opening offer, and I'm hoping I can talk him down. No, but people really think that. I had a fellow say to me once, talking about, you know, when he would die and be judged by God. He says, I know I'm going to have to do some fast talking. I said, brother, you won't even get a word out and the sentence will have fallen. In fact, it's already fallen. So at any rate, God speaks, so he says, we must pay much closer attention. Verse 2, for since the, the message really in Greek, it's logos, the word declared by angels was reliable, and everyone who didn't listen to it was judged and punished. Verse 3, how shall we escape? If we neglect such a great salvation, it was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard while God bore witness by signs and wonders with various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Well, there it is, the Trinity. God the Son speaks. God the Father bears witness by God the Holy Spirit. All this to the word of God and we must not drift away from it. Uh, To be a Christian child, I speak to you children, now, it's, it's a risky thing. When I became a Christian at 17, I, I thought, I wish I grew up in a Christian family and uh, learning the Bible from early age. But then as I've known more Christians, I realized that you can also, if you grow up in the Christian family, you might be learning how to ignore the Word of God from an early age. You've heard it and you've learned not to listen to it. Oh, friend, child, that's a perilous place to be. That's not a skill you want to learn. You want to learn always to have a tender heart to God's word and always to thank God for speaking to you and to listen to what he said through his word because the word's not going anywhere. We will respond to it by faith or by unbelief. Now I want you to to see this in chapter 3 where he begins a warning section, verse 7. Listen, therefore as the Holy Spirit says today if you hear his voice, you want to hear God talk to you today. You ask me, do you believe that the Holy Spirit speaks today, Pastor? I say, oh, yes, I do. And I will go right to this verse. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, present, active, indicative, today if you hear His voice. Wait a minute. That's what the Holy Spirit says today? But I see a quotation mark. Why is there a quotation mark there? Well, because the Holy Spirit's saying that, right? But where does that come from? Psalm 95. So he quotes a thousand years ago, Psalm 95, from, from then a thousand years more or less ago. And he says, that's what the Holy Spirit says. He still says what he said because it's God's word. It doesn't go out of date. He says, today, if you hear his voice, as all of us are doing right now, do not harden your hearts. Well, see, now there it is again. We never hear God's word without being in a moment of crisis and that we either lay hold of it by faith, in which case it brings us the substance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen, or we continue in unbelief, in which case it judges us. I'll show you that. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. I'll just skip on because what was the situation there? God promised them the Holy Land. What's that? That's a word. It's a word of promise. And how did they end up responding when God finally said, there it is, go get it. What was their response? Don't believe you're going to give it to us. They're too big, they'll beat us. What's that? Unbelief in the word of God. They had no assurance, no conviction, because no faith. Did God say, oh well, you do you. Everyone gets his own opinion. No. Verse 11, I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest. So he says to us, you and me, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So what is it to have an unbelieving heart? It's to be faced with the word of God and not actively to believe it. You don't have to do anything to have an unbelieving heart. In fact, you have to do nothing and you've got an unbelieving heart. If you and I don't respond in faith, 
It's an unbelieving heart. So he says, beware and exhort one another. Uh, Well, go back to 12. An evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But because that's where we know God, by his word. That is, as we've talked in the past, that's where he offers himself to us in his word. Not in candles or incense or rituals, but in his word. You maybe remember I, I used Brother Osai as an example and had him hold out his hand to me, offering me friendship. And what I did with his hand signified whether I accepted his friendship or not. If I wanted to accept it, I needed to clasp his hand. And so I told you, God's word is him offering himself to us. We believe it or we don't. We want a relationship with God, we'll believe it. If we don't believe it, forget a relationship with God. We will fall away. Verse 13, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. But they've all professed faith in Christ. Do they need these warnings? I guess so, because here we are. I guess we do. For we've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Verse 19, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. They had a word from God. They did not believe that word. Therefore, verse 1 of chapter 4, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them. To them the good news was, here's the land God's giving to you, take it. To us the good news is, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. But the message, and again the Greek word is just word, logos, the word they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened, for we who believed enter that rest. So you say, oh, I, go, I love going to Bible churches because I hear the word of God every Sunday. Um, amen. But do you know that that puts you and me in a crisis every Sunday? Because hearing the word of God puts us in a crisis. What do I mean by crisis? A moment of judgment. The, the Greek word krisis means judgment. A crisis is a judgment moment, a, a, a parting of the ways moment. And every time we hear a word from God, we are at a parting of the ways moment. And the writer is seeing them being tempted to fall away. That's a parting of the ways. And that starts with disbelief in the word of God, though they had professed faith in the word of God. So, Uh, Look at verse 12 then, why this word is so important. Because the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing where nothing else pierces. And verse 13, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to to whom we must give an account. The word is powerful and active. It's effective. And it's that word that is the standard of God's judgment of us. So, Turn to chapter 10 and take a look at verse 23. Just as a coda to that thought. The writer says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he promised is faithful. See, now there is why we should not waver and we should not let go of what faith has laid hold of and of saying out loud that that's what we believe. It's not because we're such great believers. We aren't. We all suck at it. We're not good at it at all. We only do it by, the, by a sovereign act of God's grace. And not because we're such great Bible readers, but it's because of what we're holding onto. You know, you're, you're drowning in water and you see a rock jutting up out of the water and you see a bit of flotsam floating on the water. Which one of those do you want to grab a hold of? The rock. Because of its quality. Because it's not going anywhere. And what we need to grab a hold of is God's word. And why? And why is this such a personal thing to God? What does the first say, verse say? Because he who promised is, what's the word? Faithful, pistos. That means worthy of our believing him. Worthy of our faith. And when we don't believe him, 
when we don't believe a word from God, what are we saying? God's not worthy of our faith. He doesn't deserve me to trust him. I'll trust my doctor. I'll trust the guy who gives me fried chicken that he didn't spit on it. But God promises something. Not so sure. Um, and what, a, what an affront to God. And this is why God is so intense on this. So I just want to broach these thoughts then as we, we finish this opening meditation. And I want to look at these same truths from different angles and see how this lives in the, the, the trials and the fears and the difficulties of our lives, the questions, the decisions, the challenges of our lives. I'll do this in the weeks to come, Lord willing. But I want to end by telling you that this that we've been talking about is how you live Proverbs 1.7. It's what Proverbs 1.7 means. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. That verse means more literally what it says than many Christians realize. But it means exactly what it says. That if you want to know anything with certainty, you've got to start with the fear of God. And what does the fear of God mean? It means faith in the Word of God. It means that God speaks... And you say, now I know that. And God speaks more, and you say, now I know that. And because we're fallen people, you at the same time, probably every time, are saying, oh, turns out I was wrong. Now I know that. Oh, turns out I was wrong. Now I know that. That's the process of Christian growth. But we must start there. Everything comes from that. And that is what Christian living is. The kingdom of man starts and ends with man and ends with the judgment of God. The kingdom of God starts and ends with God and eternity in blessedness with God. Which kingdom are we in? Totally different ways of thinking. Totally different ways of living. Totally different ideas of faith. Because totally different authorities for faith. In the kingdom of man, the authority for faith is me. In the kingdom of God, the authority of faith is God. So, uh, the focus of faith then is not on ideas or concepts, and it's not on feelings, but, but I plan to talk with you about faith and feelings, and there's a place for them. But what place? That's what we'll talk about. Faith does affect feelings. Uh, but it's not our understanding, period. It's our understanding and our grasp of the words of God. And that's what gives us basis for the hope we cling to. And that's what gives us the grounds for certainty in the unseen things we believe in. And this all makes all the difference for how we think and decide and, in the final analysis, feel about everything. How do you see yourself? How do I see myself? How do we feel about ourselves? What do we think about ourselves? Well, there's only two ways of answering that question, you see. The kingdom of man way or the kingdom of God way? Uh, what do we mean as human beings? And what do we most need as human beings? Well, there's only two approaches to answering that question. The kingdom of man way and the kingdom of God way. And uh, when I'm in fear, when I'm in pain, when I'm in need, where do I go for hope? Where do I go for certainty? Where do I go for something I know I can hang on to? There's two ways of answering that question, only two. The kingdom of man way, the kingdom of God way. The kingdom of God way puts in my hands real substance for hope and real grounds for certain knowledge of things I can't see. God's call to us is to find real hope and certain knowledge by standing on his word in faith. Because faith is is the substance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this, your word, and for the truths it tells us that we would see nowhere else. Thank you for giving us a sure and certain hope that reaches within the veil into your very presence. In other words, it's not just 
wish so. It's not just human constructions. It's not just the ideas of man. It's the eternal truths of God. Lord, I know I've got a a room of people with needs and fears and pains on many levels. Ah, Father, help them to see what a glorious and grand thing this is to have your word to give us a, a real substance for hope, to bring us a real conviction about these great truths that we don't see, but we know to be true through faith. Thank you for your word that speaks to us with such power and authority. Thank you for Jesus Christ, the centerpiece and focus of all your word. Thank you so much for him. In Jesus' name, amen.